Welcome to the Scholarly Kitchen podcast for June 12, 2013. I'm Stuart Wills from Science Magazine, and today it's all about massive open online courses, or MOOCs to use their rather inelegant acronym. So here's a little factoid. I was sniffing around Google News this morning, and the earliest reference I was able to find to MOOC, in English at least, was from just over a year ago, in April 2012. A mere 14 months later, everyone seems to be talking about MOOCs, including educators wondering about their potential impact and publishers licking their chops over a potentially vast new market for content. The SSP even devoted a plenary session in its annual meeting earlier this month to a panel discussion of MOOCs. Rick Anderson, interim dean and university librarian at the University of Utah's J. Willard Marriott Library, and a chef in the scholarly kitchen, has written a number of interesting recent posts on the promise of MOOCs. He's on the line to talk more about them today. Rick, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, in the popular press lately, I've, I've seen a tendency to conflate MOOCs with more sort of general concept of of online education or distance learning. Those things, of course, have been around for quite a while. How would you sum up what's distinctive about a MOOC in particular? I, I think the thing that's most obviously distinctive about the MOOC model that's emerging right now is that it's free. Online education, is, as you pointed out, has been around for quite a while. It has typically not been free, nor was distance learning, which for many years took the form of correspondence courses or, in a less successful example, courses offered over uh, over television. I, free free courses were offered over television um, for quite a while. But that's, that's, I guess, like sunrise semester and those yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. But those were courses only in the most abstract sense of the term, in that you could watch a sequential series of lectures. A MOOC is much more like a formal class. And, of course, different MOOC models offer different levels of certification from, you know, no certification whatsoever to some form of, of relatively formal certification, which itself may or may not cost money. But the course itself is free, and, and that's the biggest difference. I think the other difference is simply that of scale. Online education has existed on a relatively limited scale for some time, but with the MOOC model that was pretty much pioneered by Sebastian Thrun and, and his Udacity project, we're talking about enrollments in the, in the scores of thousands, and in some cases over 100,000 enrollees. And so just from a standpoint of sheer scale, MOOCs have kind of set themselves apart and, and really uh, changed the game, I think. Well, one other interesting attribute of MOOCs is they seem to have a lot of power for uh, for creating strong opinions. <laughs> in in the closing session of this year's SSP annual meeting, uh, you made what I thought was a great point about how people actually tend to look at these MOOCs and kind of calibrate their success according to their own preconceptions. Yeah, I, I think it's in the nature of arguing with statistics that people tend to use percentages in order to push a point, sometimes deceptively, and those who are uh, alarmed by or who object to MOOCs, in, in my experience, tend to poo-poo them by pointing out the small percentage of enrollees who actually successfully finish each course. So, for example, you know, you look at a, at a Udacity course for which uh, 100,000 students sign up, and people who, who want to dismiss MOOCs will say, yeah, well, 100,000 is a lot of students, but only 2% of them finish that course within a year or whatever. And, um, and that's true that that's a small percentage, but 
by making that argument, what you're saying is, look, only 2,000 students successfully <laughs> completed this free online course. And the question that I always want to ask in response to that is, how many professors in traditional college classrooms reach 2,000 students in the course of five years, you know, mm. let alone one year? And the answer is zero. And so I think it's very important neither to overstate nor to understate the current impact of MOOCs and the potential of MOOCs to do better. What matters is the number of students that are reached more than the percentage of students who, uh, who enroll and, and then complete. I mean, that, that's not an irrelevant number, but I don't think it's a number that has a real bearing on the potential impact of MOOCs in the future. Well, publishers, of course, uh, are looking to these big numbers as a, as a big new revenue possibility. I've noticed in scholarly publishing circles, at least, that a lot of the discussion of MOOCs has tended to kind of center around issues of copyright and permissions and how to actually sell content into what looks like this vast new uh, market. Um, and there has been one service provider, Sipix, that has been particularly active and visible lately in promoting its solutions to, you know, to, to these issues of IP compliance and, and payment uh, for MOOCs. From your point of view as a librarian, uh, have the copyright and IP and, and content uh, issues with MOOCs uh, been solved here? Absolutely not. In, in fact, th there are almost no issues regarding MOOCs that, that I feel have been solved at this point. In, in a way, the copyright issues seem to me to be r relatively simple. I mean, conceptually, they're simple. Um, either you have a right of access to the content that you need in order to complete the course, or you don't. What's complicated is what does the provider of the MOOC do about the fact that you may want to assign readings to which the, the students are, are not going to have a legal right of access because of the copyright issue? What SIPEX is providing is a model that I suspect is workable, although I think the scale question that offers MOOCs the possibility of such impact also has the possibility of creating an intractable funding problem when it comes to copyright. So if the library, like let's say that the, the course is being offered by a university that has a library, and the course has assignments to 10 or 20 articles that are not part of the library's collection, and uh, the university says to the library, hey, we need you to underwrite via SIPEX or, or, or some similar service provider, we need you to underwrite access to these articles for whoever signs up for, uh, for, for the course. Normally, the way that the library would authenticate users is with a, a, a network ID, but if you're talking about 100,000 enrollees in a, in a MOOC, the vast majority of those students have no relationship to the university apart from the MOOC. And so, of course, they're going to have no access to the library's resources. So SIPEX provides a model that can work. The question is whether implementing that model at scale is affordable for the library and the university. The answer to that question is almost certainly no, uh, if you're talking about 100,000 enrollees. Hmm. And one of, one of the downsides, one of the difficulties of a MOOC is that you really have no idea how many people are going to enroll. And you don't want to say yes to the first 500 students and then no to the remaining, you know, 9,995 students. So, no. Have, have the issues been solved? Absolutely not. I, 
I don't think that the problem lies with the structure of, co- uh, of copyright laws that currently exists or the structure of IP. I think the problem arises from uh, the, the simple challenges of scale, which are the flip side of the benefits of scale that, that the MOOC offers. Well, scale also sort of complicates it from the publisher's point of view. In the uh, in the plenary session on MOOCs at this year's SSP meeting, a professor who'd actually taught one noted that most of the users of these MOOCs were were kind of taking the open part of of the definition very much to heart and were focused on getting everything uh, associated with the course for free. He said that they were that when there was a required text that would you know that would require payment, they were quite creative about finding free copies and uh, sharing them with their course mates. So I, I guess it does kind of make me wonder if this is quite the boon to publishers that, uh, that they think it is. You know, it could be, but the only way that it will be a goldmine for publishers is if, in fact, publishers and faculty and the libraries that serve, and again, and I'm talking from from the assumption that uh, the MOOC is being offered by a university rather than by some independent entity. What matters is not, is not whether the, the access is actually free. What matters is whether the student experiences the access as being free. And there are two ways for the student to experience it as free. One is if, in fact, the content is available for free. And the other is if the content is paid for behind the scenes in a transparent way by some other entity. And, and that's that's the role that the library has traditionally taken. Back in the old days, the books on the shelves in the library felt like they were available to students for free. They could just come in and take them off the shelf. In fact, they weren't free. Somebody had paid for them. Hmm. And, and the same thing is true now when students click on a link in a, in a readings list from their professor. Some of those links may go to publicly available documents that are genuinely available for free, but many of them will go to documents for which a significant price has been paid, but it's been paid behind the scenes such that the student's experience is an experience of freeness. So in the MOOC context, there's no reason why that experience can't be the same, which would mean both a win for students who can easily click through and get their content and a win for publishers who are selling access rather than losing access. The problem for publishers will come when the MOOC reading list includes some live links and some dead citations, which leave the students saying, okay, how do I get a copy of this article? And not probably going to the library and saying, could you get this for me? But, mm-hmm. but instead, instead doing a Google search and looking for a copy that someone has inadvertently or, or advertently uh, put up illegally on the web, or just contacting the author and saying, uh, quite legally, saying to the author, would you mind sharing a copy of your article with me? With, with what, me and 100,000 of my friends. Well, yeah, and, and there, <laughs> there you've got to hope that you're the first student who asks the author that, because if you're the 50th student, at that point the author's going to say, uh, I'm not dealing with this anymore. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, let's, let's sort of switch to what are, for me, some of the more interesting points of discussion around MOOCs, the ones uh, connected with their potential to kind of disrupt higher education as it's done now. Um, One thing that people talk about with respect to MOOCs is that some of the university names that are experimenting with this are real name brands like Stanford and MIT, and that those universities might actually try to market their MOOCs to smaller schools uh, if that happens. So the logic goes those smaller schools, which are usually looking for any way they can to cut costs, might choose to cut back on their own offerings in favor of MOOCs. Um, what's your take on that? That would seem to have some pretty negative implications for some faculty at these schools. 
I, I think that's really true, and, and I think this is a tremendously interesting and complicated issue. I'm reminded of um, something that I heard from a, a, the president of a university that I worked at earlier in my career who um, was new at the university and was going around campus meeting with uh, departments and colleges. And when he met with the library faculty and staff, one of the things he said that really struck me was, he said, you know, if the Walt Disney Company were to decide to go into the business of teaching introductory algebra, they would do it much better than we do. And, and, he, and he then went on to say, now, that's not true of graduate topology classes mm-hmm. or graduate social work classes, but introductory algebra, absolutely, they would kick our butts. And that really, really struck me, because when you say that to people in higher education who don't want to hear it, the answer that you always get is, well, sure, you know, introductory algebra, they can do that, that's fine. But, you know, they can't replicate the classroom experience and they can't deliver upper division mathematics or philosophy classes. And that's all very true. But the problem is that colleges and universities are not mostly delivering upper division mathematics and philosophy courses. A very large amount of what, they're, of, of what our bread and butter is, is relatively introductory survey level courses. It's not everything that we do, but it's a big enough chunk of what we do that if, in fact, we start seeing competitors for that chunk of our market emerging, we should probably pay attention to that. I'm not saying we should run around in circles screaming, waving our hands over our heads, but we should certainly pay attention. And and I think one of the things that I find most distressing in the conversation about MOOCs right now is the number of people who, if one brings up MOOCs and suggest that they may be uh, a force to be reckoned with, re- respond by saying, oh, there's, it, that's all hype. You know, that, mm-hmm. that's all hype. Um, and the fact is we don't have to choose between taking all the hype seriously and completely ignoring MOOCs. What I suggest we should do is pay serious attention to them, watch what's happening, and try to the best of our ability to see what direction they're going and what the implications might be for us. Now, the other thing is that, is that everybody now responds in a very Pavlovian way to the word disruption. Um, people either get very excited or they immediately get very scornful. So I've, I've kind of tried to stop using the word disruption um, <laughs> just because it seems to turn off people's brains in one direction or another. But what I do see MOOCs potentially threatening is colleges that provide a very high cost-to-value proposition. I'm not sure that Stanford or Harvard needs to worry about being driven out of business by MOOCs. I'm not sure that a reasonably affordable, high-quality public university that charges relatively low tuition and provides a, a, a diploma of which its graduates can be proud is in danger of being uh, run out of business by MOOCs. I think that the relatively low prestige, high cost, four-year mm. liberal arts institutions mm. are, are under more threat from, from something like MOOCs. That said, I don't see systemic disruption happening in the next few years. I do think it's going to be both interesting and important to see what happens with MOOCs over the next two or three years and I just I think we really need to pay close attention. The, the things that are most disruptive are the things that you don't see coming. And one of the things that I say in talks on a regular basis is how haunted I am by the iPod. I think that when the World Wide Web came into existence in the early 90s, anybody who, who was paying attention should have seen what the impact of that was going to be. But I don't think anybody should feel dumb 
for failing to guess that the iPod was going to disrupt the entire music and telephony uh, industries. Mm. And yet it did. And despite the fact that no reasonable person could have anticipated that the iPod was going to do that, it absolutely did. So what I'm always kind of worried about is what, are, what, what is the iPod that's out there that's going to that's gonna shake things up in ways and in directions that no reasonable person could anticipate. The MOOC could be one of those things like Second Life, mm. you know, that you look at and go, oh yeah, this is going to change everything. And then doesn't. And then changes nothing, basically. And changes nothing. Or it could be something like the iPod that you look at and go, oh, isn't that cute? It's a digital version of the Walkman. And then it actually changes everything. Mm-hmm. And, and changes everything in areas and markets that you would have never anticipated it would have any impact on, like telephones. Well, let's flip it around and talk about the broad issue of outcomes. I mean, it seems in some ways like... Uh, it's really going to take years to understand the real value of MOOCs uh, in measures, for example, such as career outcomes and how those compare with people who have undergone a more uh, traditional uh, education. What are your thoughts on that? This is one of those areas that, that for me is, is very murky. I think that we have traditionally talked about higher education as a thing that is virtuous in and of itself. And, and when people have tried to talk about well, uh, about concrete outcomes. Well, yeah, you know, wh- how good of a job can you get after mm. X, you know, this degree or that degree? Or even, um, you know, to what degree does this turn you into a better person or a more informed citizen or whatever? Uh, people get very antsy when you talk about concrete outcomes because the, as soon as you start talking about concrete outcomes, what is lurking behind that kind of conversation is the question of whether higher education is actually of limited value. Hmm. With MOOCs, it's a lot less dangerous to talk about, you know, limited value and questionable outcomes. I think that the way that MOOCs will end up either either proving themselves or failing is really at the level of certification. One possible business model for MOOCs that's been suggested is, okay, so it costs nothing to take the course, but then the MOOC provider ends up charging industry uh, for sort of brokered access to the top performers in a, in a particular mm. course. Mm. Or, or look at something like uh, what's happening at, um, I think it's San Jose State, that has signed on with a MOOC uh, where they're doing sort of a cooperative thing where anybody can take the course, but you can get credit from San Jose State if you complete the course at a certain level and pay some discounted rate for the credits. That kind of arrangement brings higher education into a commodity marketplace in a way that makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. Yet at the same time, it doesn't commodify higher education in any way that it really hasn't been commodified in the past. I mean, you always had to pay tuition in order to get the credits. Mm -hmm. But I think the challenge is, is going to be figuring out the degree to which people are willing to talk about higher education as a commodity in the marketplace. And people's willingness to talk that way, I think, is going to have an impact on the viability of, of MOOCs going forward. Rick Anderson, thanks very much for being with us today. It's been my pleasure, Stuart. Thank you. And thank you for dropping in to the Scholarly Kitchen podcast for June 12, 2013. Be sure to visit scholarlykitchen.sspnet.org, where every day some of the sharpest minds in scholarly publishing detail, discuss, and debate the trends shaping the business. Thanks to the Society for Scholarly Publishing for its support of this project and for hosting our audio files. 
and to the American Association for the Advancement of Science for use of its studio and production facilities. This is Stuart Wills from Science Magazine. Until next time, on behalf of SSP and all of the chefs in the scholarly kitchen, bon appétit.